Well, this morning's message now, let's, let's, let's transition here. I want to tell you a story about, there's a missions organization called Crew. It used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. They're largely known for their missionaries that they send to different college campuses, and they start Bible studies and share the gospel with college students. But they have a component of the missions organization where they, they take a film from the life of Jesus, and they translate it into, they try to get it into every single language um, that is out there, every single dialect, every single language, and they translate this Life of Christ movie into the languages of all the native people from all over the world. And then they will take this movie and show the, show the life of Christ to people who maybe have never heard of Jesus before. And again, it's dubbed into their heart language, the language that they grew up speaking. They get to hear the life of Christ and see the life of Christ portrayed in their own language. So there's a story from a number of years ago where uh, a group of missionaries took this film and a projector and a generator and a screen into this jungle isolated area in East Asia. And not only had the people that they brought the film to, not only had they never heard of Jesus, but they'd never seen a movie before. It's their first experience hearing about the life of Christ, seeing it portrayed, and they'd never seen a movie before. And so over the course of the film, as they're watching the life of Jesus portrayed on this screen, they see all the good things that Jesus does. They see that he's helping people. He's feeding the hungry. The children loved him. They see, they begin to love Jesus in this movie. And then they get to the part of the story where Jesus is being beaten by the soldiers and held without trial. And as they watch this, these folks in the village became angry. In fact, the article I read said they, the people became unglued. They, they stood up and began to shout at the people on the screen, stop that. What are you doing? He's a good person. Why are you beating him? They are so mad, not understanding exactly how this whole thing works. When they couldn't stop what was happening on the screen, they began to get mad at the missionary who was there showing them the film and running the projector. Maybe he's responsible for this injustice, they're thinking. So the missionary just has to stop it for a moment. He stops the projector. Hey, keep watching. The story is not over yet. Keep watching. It's going to continue. It's going to, you know, keep watching. So then they get to the crucifixion. And the people, once again, are outraged. They are weeping. They're wailing. They're so upset. And the response is so strong that he has to stop the film again. Say, please, friends, I, I, I beg you, keep watching the movie. The story is not over yet. And then came the resurrection. And once again, the people responded, but not in grief this time, but just in rejoicing, in cheering, and excitement. There was jubilation. The sound was deafening. This article says the people were dancing. They were slapping each other on the back. They were so excited to see how the story played out. And again, this time the missionary turned the projector off, but this time was just to encourage and to share the, the, the gospel with the people who had seen this portrayed. He didn't tell them to calm down and wait for what's next. He joined the celebration with them. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I assume that you've, you're pretty familiar with the story of Jesus. I don't know every single person in the room, but, but odds are this is not the first time you've heard about Jesus. You're not like the people watching the Jesus film. 
You're pretty familiar with some of the events of Jesus' life and the resurrection and what this day means. Um, Maybe you're newer to the faith. Maybe you're newer to understanding Christianity. Or maybe it's something from your childhood, maybe. I remember grandma taking me to Sunday school or whatever, and I heard those stories. Or maybe, if you're like me, you have no memory of when the first time was you heard the story of Jesus. Maybe it's so just been a, it's been ingrained in your life for most of your life. But I almost feel jealous of the people in the story that I just shared. Like how, to remember the first time you heard the story of Jesus and the way you felt and the impact of this story on your life. And how amazing would that be? I'm grateful that I've grown up with the influence of, of knowing the story of Jesus. But there's something powerful about taking a fresh look at the story. We're so familiar with the details of the life of Christ, and in particular, these details of the the final week and his death, burial, and resurrection. But we're going to take another look at the eyewitness accounts from Scripture. We're going to be in John chapter 20 today. It's okay if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you do, I encourage you to follow along with me, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well in just a few moments. But John chapter 20 is one of the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to be talking today about how the resurrection is historic, it's personal, and it's global. It's each of those three things. We'll talk more about what what each of those mean in a few moments. But we've been doing a series uh, on Sunday mornings leading up to Easter called Meeting Jesus. And each week we've been looking at the life of Christ and studying details around his life and hearing these stories from, uh, from the word and Each week, looking at an encounter that Jesus has. Jesus meets these regular, everyday people, and things change. He makes this radical impact on the people's lives that he encounters. And so this week today, or this Sunday, we are looking at meeting the risen Jesus. And I need to remind you that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony. It's the story of Jesus recorded by those who knew him, or by those who investigated those who knew him, and recording this for us as a historic account. This is the story of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said. It's recorded for us in the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are this eyewitness testimony. We're going to be in John 20 in just a moment, as I said, but we're going to be introduced to a character named Mary Magdalene, and I want you to have some background information in your mind before we get to her story in this specific meeting with Jesus that she had. She was someone who is mentioned a number of times in the Gospels. Uh, In the Gospel of Luke, we are told that she was experiencing demonic activity in her life, this demonic possession, and Jesus set her free from this, delivered her from the work of the enemy, and changed her life in a dramatic way. And she became one of the supporters of Jesus. There was this group of women that went around with the disciples, supporting them, Um, meeting their needs, helping out with them, even funding and supplying financially for the disciples in their ministry. She was there at the crucifixion. The last time she saw Jesus, life had left his body and he was barely recognizable. Just the beating that he had undergone, the blood and all of this, like he, he had died. There was no doubt about it. That was the last time she'd seen Jesus. Then her story picks up in John chapter 20. So we're going to read John 20 verses 1 through 18. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She returned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. Okay, let's talk about what we see here. I mentioned that I, the sermon today is going to talk about how the resurrection is historic, it's personal. And it's global. And in other words, here's some questions. Did this happen? This event that we just read, did this happen? Is it historic? Right? This is the, the first question. And then is it personal? What difference does it make for me? If this event happened, what difference does it make for individuals? And then it's global. So in other words, what difference does this make for the world, for everybody else? Did this happen? What difference does it make for me? What difference does it make for the world? Historic, personal, Global. Let's talk about how this is historic. There, we have such familiarity with the, with the story, by the way, that we have trouble sometimes placing ourselves in Mary's shoes or sandals, whatever the case may be. And this discovery on that Sunday, while it was still dark, she shows up and she sees the tomb. She knows where Jesus is buried. She sees a tomb with this rolling stone rolled away and her heart sinks. What, what's happened here? Her, her expectation, right? Someone has stolen the body of Jesus. The last time she saw Jesus, he was being prepared for his burial. He's being wrapped in linen cloth and the ointments and all these things. And as bad as the crucifixion was, this is like the only thing that could be worse, right? Now they have to deal with someone desecrating Jesus' body. Someone stole in Jesus' body. That's her understanding of what happened when she sees this. So she sees the tomb. The other gospels tell us there were other women with her, but she leaves. The tomb is open. The stone is rolled away. She's, I've got, I've got to tell the disciples. And she runs 
to go tell Peter and John. We know it's John. He, he refers to himself in sort of this encoded way. He says, I'm the disciple who Jesus, or the disciple who Jesus loved, and Peter run to the tomb, right? So that's, and we'll come back to that statement uh, later, but that's John's sort of coded way of referring to himself. By the way, just for fun, I was curious, how long was this run? Mary Magdalene runs from the tomb to where we believe the disciples were staying and then back, right? So we think it's about three quarters of a mile um, from the distance of, so a little over one kilometer, right? So there was a pastor that I read that had researched this about how far the distance was. And he said, "I, I like to run on Easter morning. I run a he is risen 1K. That's what he called it. It's the same distance that she ran to go get the disciples. So she, she ran there and back. The disciples run to go see for themselves. Once again, they hear the tomb is empty. Someone has taken the body. They think they are devastated. They're not excited about this news. They're not expecting what they eventually find, but they're upset and they run to the tomb. And I got to say, I am delighted by the detail that John includes in here that he got there before Peter did. I just think that's so kind of petty and great at the same time, right, that he mentions that. He mentions it three times, in fact, in the, in the account uh, in John 20. He says, um, like in verse, so both of them were running together. This is verse four. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Um, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. So he mentions it over and over again that, that like, we were running together, but I got there before Peter got there. I just think that's a great detail that he includes there, right? So they're, they're thinking, I, I just imagine the thought process on the, on the run to the tomb. They run, think something has happened to the body of Jesus. This is horrible news We need to go see what's going on. And so they run there together, and on their mind, all they're thinking about is something's happened to the body of Jesus. We must get there as soon as we can. And then at some point, Peter's, or John's mind kind of switches a little bit. We're both running, but I wonder if I can outrun Peter. I bet I'm faster than him, right? And then he runs, and then, and it's recorded, and it's one thing to do that, right? To like, it's a foot race. Maybe John's one of those people who just makes everything a competition, you know, it's like you can't pass him on the freeway. He's driving slow, but then he speeds up when you try to pass him. You know, he didn't have a car, but if he did, maybe one of those kinds of people. But it's one thing to beat Peter in a foot race, but it's another thing entirely to record it in his eyewitness testimony, you know, that he includes it. But, but I think we're talking about this is, this is a historical event. And so those are the kind of details you include when you're writing your eyewitness testimony. We were both running. I got there before... Peter, I didn't look in, but Peter did look in, and they arrive, they take in the scene. Peter goes instantly into the tomb, and he sees the burial cloths lying there, which confuses him, because they they think someone's taken Jesus' body away, but the burial cloths are there, and that makes no sense, because if you're a grave robber, Like, why would you take the time, if you're stealing a body, to leave the burial cloths behind? They're worth money. In fact, the spices, the ointments and things that were wrapped up in there, that's like thousands of dollars worth of of value there. Why would you take the time? And then it would take forever to do that, to unwind this yards and yards and yards of linen cloth 
wrapping the body of Jesus and that's left there. And then the covering over his face is folded up in a separate spot. Or if you were one of the disciples and you were trying to carry on this plot to pretend that Jesus rose from the dead, why would you dishonor the body of Jesus by removing him without clothing, right? Taking him away naked. They wouldn't do this. John goes in and he, Peter's not sure what to make of all this, but John goes in and he sees the same thing and it says he believes. He begins to believe this, what Jesus has said. And I think once again, this lends credibility to the account of the resurrection by including the fact that none of them expected this. They don't know what to make of the resurrection at this point. Like we, they, three times Jesus predicted his death and resurrection and they still missed it. They're there, it, it didn't fit the framework and the way they were thinking about what the Messiah was going to do. They, 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 didn't under, they needed to be explained to by Jesus what this meant and what this was all about. There were not people waiting in lawn chairs in front of the tomb to see if Jesus was gonna rise from the dead, right? They, people will do this you know, Black Friday sales and stuff. People will be camping out in front of Best Buy or whatever, to get a flat screen TV and they'll stay there for 24 hours or there'll be people in a tent waiting for tickets to go on sale for something. People were not there waiting to see Jesus rise from the dead. They did not get it. And why would you include that detail unless that's how it played out? They weren't expecting it. They needed to have it explained to them. Verse nine tells us that they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Disciples take in the scene, John and Peter, and then they leave. They go back to where they were staying. Mary sees two angels, and she's just like not bothered by the fact that she sees angels. By the way, a lot of times when you see people in the Bible and they see angels, they fall down. They're afraid. Mary sees angels, and she's got a one-track mind here. Where is Jesus? They're, they're in shining garments. They, they are... I'm going to read that part again in 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This is bright white. This is the same white described in the Mount of Transfiguration story where Jesus in, in these bright shining garments. And she sees the angels there and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she's not concerned about the fact that she sees angels. She's not falling down. She says, tell me where Jesus is. They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And then she turns and she sees someone and it does not register for her, her who this is. She sees Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she said, this guy's a gar he must be the gardener. I don't know if it's she's in the tomb and it's, he's kind of a silhouette or she's just expecting Jesus to look different or just not even registering that she could possibly be seeing Jesus, but she initially does not recognize him. It's not until she says, he, she hears her name that she knows this is Jesus. He's back. He's risen. The very first person to see the risen Jesus is Mary Magdalene, 
who came from a broken situation, right? This place of brokenness and demonic activity in her life to now seeing the risen Jesus and being the very first person to see the risen Jesus. There was an ancient critic of Christianity named Celsus who wrote a few hundred years after the events of of Jesus' ministry, and he was putting his list of reasons together why you shouldn't believe Christianity. And one of them was that the first witnesses were women. Now, like we we go, that's very offensive, Celsus, right? But we, we have to remember the history of women and their rights and their place in our culture that um, at, at these ancient times, women's testimony were not permitted in court. Like they, if, if something happened and they had witnessed that their testimony was not permissible in court or allowed, it wouldn't be calculated into um, legal decisions. I mean, it was, a, it was a totally different time with this. And so Celsus said, the fact that women were the first witnesses of this makes this... Um, less likely to be trusted that you should believe in Christianity. And we say the exact opposite today because the fact that women were the first witnesses and they recorded, they told people what happened, that that we believe it's trustworthy because you wouldn't make this up in the ancient times. If you wanted to invent a religion that you wanted people to believe, well, the first person to see them were women because they didn't believe um, in in the value of, of women the way we do now at this time. It would have been counterproductive to mention that women were the first witnesses unless it happened and they were trying to give an accurate account of what happened. I got to say here too on this idea of it being historic, if the resurrection didn't happen, feel free to dismiss Christianity entirely. But it did happen. And if it didn't happen, by the way, and if you're in that place where you're wondering about maybe it didn't happen, You have some explaining to do about the rise of Christianity and the spread of the message of Jesus. Christianity is the largest religion in the world and it spread to that point from a handful of followers who said over and over again at every available opportunity that Jesus is risen and we have seen him or we have heard from those who saw him. And every sermon recorded for us in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, over and over and over again, every sermon, they say, he rose from the dead. This was like their main point for all the beginning years of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. He paid the penalty for our sin. He died on the cross, but he rose from the grave. This happened. In a NIV Bible study, or the, one of the commentaries I was using, it says the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that others could get in and see that he was not there. Some of the commentators um, say that Jesus, the wrappings, the, the burial clothes that he was in, seemed to be just sunken in and left as if he just evaporated through them or rose through them without needing to unwind them, and they were just there. And that if Jesus can do that, he doesn't need a stone to be rolled away for him to get out. He's, he's free to leave whenever he wants to leave the tomb. But the stone's rolled away so we could see, so the eyewitnesses could see in there and to see that he truly was risen. It's historic, but it's also personal. 
Mary's story is a powerful one, this, this account of the resurrection. And the whole story, by the way, in John 20, verse 1, it starts with the phrase, while it was still dark, which I know refers to as, it's referring to the time of day it was, but I see some significance there that there, there was darkness in Mary's life, darkness in her, in her understanding, darkness in the understanding of the disciples. There was just darkness everywhere. And this conversation takes place between her and who she thinks is the gardener. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? I love it that the first recorded words of Jesus after his resurrection are words of compassion. He could have said, I'm like a bad penny. I always turn up or whatever, one of those movie lines, you know, like I'm back, you know. Could have said anything. But he sees someone weeping, and he knows that he's the answer to her grief, but he first identifies with her, he talks with her, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? This this is so typical of Jesus, to care about people in that way. Mary didn't recognize Jesus until Jesus called her name. There's a real common um, way of talking about Christianity in our culture, and it's this, that, that, that uh, the miraculous things uh, about Jesus, these stories about Jesus, the resurrection and miracles and things like that, we don't know about those things, but we do know that Jesus' teaching was amazing. Jesus had these principles and these virtues and these talking about loving people, loving your neighbor, and he introduced this new way of teaching into the world that was transformative, and then his disciples, you know, carried that message of Jesus on to more and more people, and that's kind of the kind of culturally appropriate way of talking about Jesus in some ways in our culture right now. He was a great teacher. We don't know about the miraculous things, but I want to tell you that Mary and the disciples in this moment, they had the teachings of Jesus. They had all those teachings, but they were still devastated. What they needed was Jesus in their life personally. They needed Jesus physically there with them. They needed to see that he had risen from the grave, that his teachings are amazing and should be proclaimed to the whole world. But what they needed was their risen savior in this moment. And Mary hears Jesus say her name, Mary. What they needed was Jesus himself. Jesus rose and that changed everything for them. Mary is embracing Jesus. She holds on to him. And verse 17 always puzzled me. Honestly, like for years and years reading this passage, verse 17 was always a weird one to me. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. She's grasping onto Jesus like, like in some kind of lock maybe. I don't know exactly what the situation is here. But he says, do not cling to me. And it's not because Jesus is electrified and he will zap her if she gets close. You know, he allows Thomas to touch his hands and to see um, you know, the wound in his side. It's, he, he's physical. He can be touched. But he's almost telling her like, hey, I'm not going anywhere yet. I will ascend to the Father. That is coming. But you've got important work to do now, I've got a mission for you 
Mary. Mary is the only one in the whole world at this point who has seen the risen Jesus. And she's got people to tell. People need to hear from her that she has seen Jesus. And I love the gentle response that Peter gives to his, for his disciples. The message he tells her is, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And he wants them to go, he wants her to go and tell the disciples. He says, go to my brothers and say to them. And if you're familiar at all with the account of the crucifixion, the fact that Jesus calls them my brothers and has words of compassion for them is a beautiful thing. Because he could have said, go to those scoundrels, those deserters. They bailed on me when I needed them the most. They wouldn't even stay awake to pray with me in the garden. Go to those knuckleheads and tell them I'm coming for them. That's not what he said, right? He has the most gentle, loving response. Go tell my brothers that you have seen the risen Jesus. It's not only a historical account, but it's personal and I want to read just a few verses about what happens next when Jesus comes and, and talks with the disciples. This is verses 19 to 21. And then I'm going to talk about what, what do we do with all of this? So on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fears of the Jews, fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Mary is sent with a mission and a message. Go tell the disciples about me. The disciples are also sent with a message. I, as I have been sent into the world, I'm also sending you. Because there is a global implication. It's not only historical, it's personal, but it's also global. And the different people in the story respond in different ways. And I want to think about our own lives and just kind of the impact that the world, uh, that this story has on the world, right? Peter, he goes and investigates. He checks out the facts, but he's still kind of confused about what happened. And that, that could be you this morning. You could be like investigating all of this, but not sure where you're at when it comes to Jesus. John sees the facts and he believes. He sees the same evidence that Peter saw, and he believes. Mary meets Jesus personally, and it sets everything right from, for her. Her grief is turned into joy in a moment. She's overwhelmed with joy from this place of being overwhelmed with grief. Seeing Jesus changes everything for her. There's a couple of words that show up in this story. One is, one is peace. Another one is joy. Well, the word joy is not in it, but the concept of joy. Well, it did say the disciples were overjoyed, so I guess the word joy is in there. Um, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. It's this word shalom in the Jewish culture. That's probably the word he used specifically. And it's this word of things being right with the world. Peace be on you in a full way. Peace that you experience, peace in your surroundings. And I want us to think for a moment about how does this the lack of peace globally right now that we experience? That, 
We've never been more in need of the peace that Jesus offers us. People are anxious. People are worried. People are fearful. Jesus speaks peace into the world and into individuals' lives, but also into the world at large. That he's there to offer peace because we can have peace with God, because we can have peace with God the Father, God the Son. We, we can have life in him and this joy where everyone that Jesus meets in this story is, they, they go from grief to joy. Mary goes from wailing in tears to being overwhelmed with joy and embracing Jesus. I, I mentioned earlier I'd come back to this, this phrase that John uses to describe himself. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, there's a couple ways you could, you could interpret that if you were looking at that. And I'll talk about the wrong way, I think, and then what I think is the right way. I don't think John was saying, I was Jesus' favorite. Right? He's like, I, the, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. Those rest of those guys he was sort of indifferent to. He's not big fans of Peter in particular, but me, he loved me. I don't think that's what John was saying. I think it's John's way of being humble and John's way of sort of trying to anonymize himself. Like he's trying to be anonymous. I don't want to constantly be referencing myself. He's writing his account of the life of Jesus. And he has to refer to himself several times because he's in the story. He's, in fact, one of the main characters of the story, one of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so he, he is going to have to refer to himself over and over again, and he decides he's going to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't think he's bragging, but I do think he's talking about his identity. That when he thinks about himself... He thinks of himself that way, that I am the one that Jesus loved. Jesus loved me. And that changed everything for me. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He, he loved me. And that changed thing for me, things for me. Like the peace and the joy and the life that Jesus offers. He's talking about his identity. So I want to talk about three potential responses to the story of the resurrection. We've been focusing on the story of the resurrection and that it's historical, personal, and global. And three particular ways that you, I, I encourage you to consider responding this morning. On an Easter Sunday, we, we, we try to put the word out for people. We try to invite people here and, and, and give you an opportunity to hear the gospel message. And so I, I hope this morning that there's some of you in this room that, that maybe have yet to receive Jesus into your life as your Savior. You've never invited Jesus to be a part of your life. It's more of a topic that you know about, but not something that you personally have experienced. I want to invite you this morning to receive Jesus as, as your Savior if you haven't done that yet to believe in him, to receive the joy, the peace, the life that only Jesus offers. There's a verse in Revelation chapter three where it describes Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And he tells people that for anyone who invites him in, he'll come in and have a meal with them. He'll come in and be a part of their life. And I think for some of you, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking and wanting you to invite him into your life. And I hope that if that's you this morning, you, you do that. I'm going to guide you in a uh, prayer in a few moments after, in, in just a few more moments, that, that could be a tool, a way of expressing that decision you'd like to make in your relationship with Jesus to invite him to be a part of your life. I find it profound that Jesus is confused for a gardener in this story. 
He's not the gardener that worked in the garden where the tomb was, but he is sort of a gardener where he's fixing something that was broken in a garden. The story of the scriptures tells us that Jesus once walked in the garden with humanity and then sin entered the world and all the brokenness and the fallout that happened because of that. And it took Jesus coming to set things right to restore that brokenness. We, I don't think anyone would disagree that the world is a broken place, that there's fallout in our relationship with God, with others, and even with our own selves, brokenness that we experience even internally. But Jesus came to set things right. He came to restore things. He lived the perfect life. He died for us. And the Bible invites us to turn from our sins and to receive his forgiveness. And that when we do, scripture says, there is new life. The old has passed away. The new has come. And you're invited this morning. If you've never received that personally, I'll give you an opportunity in a few minutes to respond in that way. There's another potential response to the message of the resurrection, and and I think it's very common in our culture to take a very casual approach to Jesus, kind of to hold beliefs about Jesus in our heads or even in our hearts. We'd say, I do believe. I don't need to pray to receive Jesus. I've already done that. But the place that Jesus has in our daily life is very minimal, very marginal, very on the fringes. That for many, many people in our culture, they, they've accepted it kind of mentally and maybe in their heart, but it does not affect in any way the, their daily existence. And Jesus offers more than just precepts or beliefs about him. He offers to live his life through you. You're invited to, to be rooted in a life, the life of Christ so that he bears good fruit and does good things in your life and makes a positive impact in the world through you. And that you're supposed to be a light, Scripture says, that Jesus called himself the light of the world, and then he tells his followers, you are the light of the world. We're meant to be a light. We're meant to have this vitality in our relationship with him. It's not meant to be a marginal thing. And so if that's you this morning, if you would say, yeah, I believe in this, but I'm not sure it's a real active part of my life, I encourage you to change that this morning. I invite you to take on a more dynamic relationship with Jesus where you go all in with him. You spend time with him. You engage in a, a community of faith. And I hope it's this one. We invite you to be a part of this one where we encourage you in that life with Jesus. C.S. Lewis, who I love to quote if you know me, says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It can't be kind of important. It is either of no importance or infinite importance. And so if you're in this place where it's kind of been moderately important, maybe maybe we need to move to a place together where it's of infinite importance to you. Third possible response I want to encourage you to take for, for different people in the room here. The resurrection response is one of gratitude, thanksgiving, celebration. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's a part of your day-to-day life already, I encourage you to be grateful and be thankful and to celebrate. And like Mary and like the disciples, go on the mission with Jesus. Be a part of the spread of this. Be a part of making a difference in the world with the message of Jesus, our risen Savior. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you so much for this time of studying the resurrection and, Lord, celebrating, learning from what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who has yet to put their faith in you. I pray that right now in this moment, you would invite them into your family. You would bring them from death to life, Scripture says. Lord, I pray as well for anybody who, who maybe they would acknowledge this has not been a key part of their life. This has just been kind of one thing about them is that they believe in you, but it's not something they practice Lord, I know your, the, the faith that you're calling us to is one of daily relationship, that our lives are shaped by your teachings and by your message. And so, Lord, I pray that you would call people that are living on the margins, so to speak, of what you're doing in this world right into the middle of it. Help them to go all in on their relationship with you, to practice their faith, to be a part of a community. Lord, I pray that you do that as well. And Lord, for all of us this morning, I pray that you would help us to celebrate and experience gratitude, experience thankfulness for what you have done for us, this triumph over sin and the grave. Lord, we are grateful that we can have a relationship with you through Jesus and that the crucifixion was not the end. It was only a new beginning. That when you rose, when your son rose from the grave, Lord, you, you Open the door to a new way of living, a new way of existing, and we praise you for that. We can be a new creation, your word talks about. We are grateful for that truth. We thank you, Lord. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment longer, I, I've got a prayer that I, I'm going to pray kind of phrase by phrase and pause between the phrases. And this is here for, for those of you who want to put their faith, your faith in Jesus this morning, that you've maybe never made that decision uh, before and you want to put your faith in Jesus, I, I offer this prayer as a way of expressing that to, to Christ. And so I'm going to pray this prayer and kind of pause between the phrases and allow you to do that. Just quietly where you are, you don't need to pray it out loud, but use this as an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Savior. Here we go. Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that my sin deserves to be punished. But I believe you took my place. You died on the cross. You rose from the grave. Thank you for paying my debt. Thank you for bearing my punishment. Thank you for offering forgiveness. I turn from my sins. I receive you as Savior. Amen. With your heads bowed and eyes closed for a moment longer. Is there anybody in this room? No one's looking around. No one's going to embarrass you. But I'd just love to acknowledge if anyone made that decision today to put your faith in Jesus. If you just quickly raise your hand up so I can acknowledge you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your family. Lord, there's nothing like that. And it was purchased at such an infinite price. And so, Lord, as we hear the gospel proclaimed as believers in you already, Lord, may we celebrate, may we, may we be grateful for what you've done for us. And, Lord, may we be a part of being on your mission and helping other people to meet you for the first time. So, Lord, I pray that you'd bless us now as we offer this one final praise to you, this worship time. I pray that you would receive the glory and the honor that you are due. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.